Well, good morning. We're, we're, um, we're speaking of the uh, heckling and such, we did get the rotten tomatoes passed out, right? This is okay. We're just kidding. good. Or um, real fast, I'm just going to make a quick adjustment here for my own sake. So there we go. So I can see. So for those of you that don't know me again, um, it'd be hard at this point. But my name is Scott. I am the associate pastor here. Or, um, or first of all, I just want to thank Tom for or, or that or that message. That was just a beautiful thing. Or my life is a testimony, indeed. Or even standing here today is just a testimony to that image right there. So um, yeah. So uh, welcome online. Or if you're out there watching us and or. Uh, Pastor Malale and Pastor Malale and our, our family in Tanzania and anywhere else. If you're watching online, thank you. Uh, we appreciate you guys. Um, let's jump into this. We'll see what we can do. So a few weeks back, um, Bob taught on Mark 13, and he talked about where Jesus said to the disciples, uh, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in power and great glory. Uh, it was a quote from Daniel 7.13, and he talked about kind of the far fulfillment of what Jesus spoke about there, um, just the, the second coming, the final return of Jesus. Today, we're talking about Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in Mark 14, uh, 53-65. So this passage speaks of um, really the near fulfillment of that, mess, of that same idea. We're going to see that language again. And really, it talks about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, right? And those three words, the kingdom of God, are going to surround a lot of what we talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the mindsets uh, represented by those present, and um, I'm going to challenge us to think about how how we really see the kingdom of God versus what I'll call the kingdom of our stuff, right? Um, As we go forward today, I want you to think about really what the kingdom of God means to you, what that phrase means to you, if you've ever heard that. It's honestly not a phrase that we often throw around a lot these days, um, but I think it's very important. And I also want you to keep this verse in mind. This is Matthew six nineteen to 21. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you've been around church for any length of time, we love to quote this verse. And I think we love the idea of storing up treasure. Um, I wonder if we think about a little as much kind of where our hearts lie in that. So... Let's keep keeping that, all that in mind as we go forward today. Here's where we find Jesus today. So this is Mark 14, 53 to 65. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? 
What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Pardon me. Some of us may be familiar with the story. Um, if you've been coming regularly, you have rec- if you've been coming here regularly, you've recently heard about everything that happened between the last summer, uh, Jesus in Gethsemane, and Jesus' arrest. If you're not familiar with any of this, here is your TLDR synopsis, right? Jesus is at the end of three years of public ministry with his disciples. He's been heading directly to Jerusalem, where he knows the Jewish leaders want to kill him. And he has told his disciples plainly, this is going to happen. He has celebrated the Passover with his disciples and what we call the Last Supper. And he established the new covenant there. From there, we see him go to the Garden of Gethsemane where we see his deep agony and the humanity of Jesus' struggle with what was about to happen to him on the cross. Bob made this point last week that even though we see Jesus in so much agony that he is physically sweating blood, When he's done praying, he rises strong and resolute to do his father's will. He was promptly arrested and led away to stand trial before the authorities. And so we find him here before the ruling council of Sanhedrin. So I want to dig deeper into what's going on here, right? What those present in this situation uh, would have heard in Jesus' statements and what the impact of that should mean for us. On the surface... This seems like a pretty straightforward conversation. Um, For us in our context today, I think what Jesus says seems to be pretty clear, right? He's brought before the Sanhedrin. They bring in some would-be witnesses. Jesus won't defend himself. They ask him a point-blank face value question, and he gives a very clear answer followed by a couple of Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish leaders get all upset, and they want to kill him, but they already wanted to do that, right? So end of story. Let's move on. The danger for us when we read the Bible today is that we read it as if we know what's going on. That may seem like a weird thing to say, but we need to remember this book was written to and largely for right, a Jewish audience 21 centuries ago. Right? To read it today and not assume that there is cultural and uh, literary nuance that we just simply can't see plainly Right, will cause us to miss so many of the deeper messages that God has for us in Scripture. I think we tend to approach a passage like this, look at the parts that make plain sense, kind of skip over the rest, and then assume we get the point. So with all that in mind, let's dive a little deeper and, and look at who the players are and what they would have seen and what they would have heard. So the Sanhedrin was the ruling Jewish council, and it was 70 people made up of two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, We see this in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. That's the Sanhedrin. 
the first group mentioned is the high priest and the chief priests, right? So these are Sadducees, right? Now, to be clear, all the chief priests were Sadducees, but not all Sadducees were the chief priests, right? The high priest was just that, the leader of the chief priest. And at this point in history, his name is Caiaphas. Um, but to be clear, right, the chief priests, these were not good men, Okay. The chief priests were a highly corrupt group of priests that ruled the temple much like a mob. Okay, there's a lot of history behind that. Or in fact, when Bob taught about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, turning over the, the money changer tables, right? That corrupt system of the money changers and the sacrifices, that was all run by the chief priests, right? It's not like that was happening under their nose or they were like, this shouldn't be. Like that was run by the chief priests. Um, the chief priests were closely aligned with King Herod, who had enormous wealth, right? Um, and the Sadducees fully embraced all the wealth and comfort and pleasure of the Roman and, and Herodian lifestyle. In fact, um, it's been said that uh, like Bill Gates would probably mow Herod's lawn, right? Herod is one of the wealthiest men to have ever lived, ever, right? Um, the Pharisees, on the other hand, okay, not, not the priests. They were an extremely devout sect of Jewish scholars that were just deeply devoted to living out the law of God. Right Here we see them referred to as the teachers of the law and the elders. And we love to give the Pharisees a bad rap, like we do, because you know, Jesus was consistently critical of them. Right? But why was Jesus critical of the Pharisees? See, these were men who looked back on all the pain that had come on Israel, right, through their ex exiles to Assyria and then to Babylon, and they had said to themselves, hey, listen, that happened because we didn't know the law of God and honor his ways, and we're never going to let that happen to Israel again. So these men gave their lives to the study of the scriptures, and quite literally by the time you were a Pharisee, you had the entire Tanakh, right, the entire Old Testament memorized and committed to memory. So for reference, right, if you have a Bible, right, that's the Old Testament, right? <laughs> so how many of you could commit that to memory, right, or maybe even have any of it committed to memory? <laughs> so, or, or, right, these were men that could or stand in a circle and one could just start quoting somewhere and pick up and they could stop and the other one could pick up and they could just go around a circle like that all day. Like they had all of it in their head. These were men that knew the depth of the law and the promises of God. In fact, right, we're all familiar, even if you haven't come to church very often, you're probably familiar with John 3.16, right? This is a famous scripture verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, right, but have eternal life, right? But here's the trick, right? Who was Jesus talking to when he said that? Oh. Right, exactly. Or I heard a few mumbles out there. Or, um, he was talking to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that sought out Jesus in the middle of the night, right? And he calls Jesus rabbi, right? This is a man who is the ruling teacher, right? The elite of the elite, of, of, the, of the teachers of Israel, and he comes to this ragtag, you know, guy and says, Rabbi, right? He humbles himself enough to call Jesus teacher, right? Not all of these men were bad men. The trick is that or the, 
the Pharisees were passionate about the law of God, but they had forgotten about the heart of God. So, and that's what Jesus was critical of. So, really what's important to see, right, the reason I go through all that is to represent these two groups, and there are different approaches to life. Right, the Sadducees represent a perspective that says, hey, listen, I can pursue all the stuff and power of the world. I can enjoy a life centered around my comfort and kind of hold God as part of that, the whole thing, right? Really, I can look religious and still have all my comfort. On the other hand, the Pharisees represent a perspective that says, if I focus closely enough on the law of God and following his rules, then he won't get angry and punish me. Right? But clearly, God does not like those people that don't follow God the way I do. Right? And I'm just going to say this. Or if we're honest, I think there's probably, you know, if we look in the mirror, I think we can see reflections of some of those things in, probably in a lot of our own lives. These are not or things that are exclusive right, to, old, uh, to old, pe- old people. Old people. <laughs> Or let's go with that. Or, or, or young people, for that matter. Or, yeah, there we go. Or, 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 um, or the, or, or. so, right, so, so the middle of this, right, here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and in the middle, here's Jesus, right? He stands there in front of them and threatens both of these ways of life, right? Um, and they really want to eliminate that threat. So in the middle of this clash of worldviews, let's look at the interaction with Jesus and the one question that they pose that he does answer. So this is Mark 14, uh, 61 to 64. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the hand, right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And that phrase, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, are what we're going to kind of focus on. Now, this is the point where I think a lot of us would typically kind of read this text and say, Okay, Jesus said this thing, it's kind of cryptic. I don't really understand, but clearly by the reaction, the chief priests did not like what was going on, right? So we just kind of go, by context, I kind of get it, but then I think we move on, right? Here's the, here's the trick. It would have been very, or very clear to the members of the Sanhedrin who knew their scriptures, who knew the Messianic prophecies, exactly what Jesus was driving at when he quoted these passages, Okay, there are two Old Testament scriptures here, and we're going to kind of deal with them in reverse order. The second one is, again, that quote from Daniel, 3, Daniel 7, um, and it's the language, again, that Jesus used with the disciples in chapter 13. The first one is from Psalm 110, and we're going to come back to that one in a minute. So here's the passage from Daniel. I want you to see this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one, like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Uh, Jeremy, can you go back to that first verse? Or, or So just as a point here, I just want to kind of make a quick note. You look at this, you're like, hmm, who are these people? Son of man, ancient of days. Or Just as a, as a point of clarification, when the, the phrase ancient of days is kind of a, just a Hebrew way to reference God, right? This is the almighty God, the ancient of days, the one who always was and was before time itself. Son of man, this is a specific reference to the Messiah, Right, so even in our context right here, what we see is that we're going to talk about this is Jesus, this is his father. Right, so this is Son of Man, this is Jesus standing there. He's going to reference the Ancient of Days. This is his father who's still in heaven. Or, or, thanks, you can take that down. Or, or so a little further back um, in Mark 11, or, Bob talked about or, kind of an ancient rabbi that wrote on kind of the duality of how this Messiah might come or to Israel, or, and that he might come on the clouds, he might come riding a donkey because these were both seen in the Old Testament as, as a messianic prophecy. Um, and the trick was that was going to be a gauge of Israel's worthiness, right? If, if Messiah came and found Israel worthy, he would come on the clouds. And if he didn't, he would come riding on a donkey as a rebuke to them. The trick is this rabbi would not have foreseen that the Messiah was destined to die and rise again. That was not something that was clearly understood or in Old Testament messianic prophecy. Right? If we shoot forward into Acts 2, right, this is the beginning of the church. We find the apostle Peter at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the apostles, and he comes out and he preaches this sermon, and he references Psalm 16.10, which says this, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And... Peter references that as a prophecy about Jesus, right? But the trick is that up until that point in history, the Jews did not see Psalm 16 as a messianic psalm, right? They would not have looked at Psalm 16 and went, oh, that's talking about the Messiah. That was not in that group of scriptures they considered. In fact, the Jews' assumption was that the Messiah would be a man who would be chosen by God because of his worthiness and adherence to the law. He would then be glorified, presented to God as in Daniel 7, ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he would then return to earth to conquer the enemies of Israel and rule here on earth. But when we look at the passage in Daniel in light of what we know about Jesus now, I think it brings us to a different perspective. Right? Jesus did ride into Jerusalem on a donkey when he came into, when he came into Jerusalem, because that's what the Messiah was always meant to do. He was always meant to come as a servant, right? not as a conquering king. And if we look at the language in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is not coming on the clouds to earth. He is coming on the clouds as he's being ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Right? So the imagery here in Daniel points to the consummation of the kingdom of God established through Jesus' ministry and fully ushered in by his victory on the cross. See, when God made a covenant with Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus, which would become kind of the establishment, right? That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Right? The Jews didn't see that covenant as being a covenant that would ever go away. Right? They saw themselves as the chosen people of God, and the Jewish law would be the law forever. When the Messiah came, he would bring all nations under that law, and they would all serve God, right? Serve the God of the Jews, and, and the Messiah would reign in, from Jerusalem. There was no thought of a new covenant, 
right? Even though God clearly said that through the prophet Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 31, where the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Or this is the new covenant that Jesus establishes at the, at the, the Last Supper. Or a covenant sealed with his blood sacrifice for both Jews and Gentiles. But as a result of the Jews' idea that the Messiah would reign on earth as an earthly king, right, the Jewish leaders saw the kingdom of God as an earthly kingdom. Right, but it, literally in just a few hours from now, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate and he would say this in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. If you're not familiar with it, this is where we get super cool, edgy Christian bumper stickers like this one, right? Or... or or, or I mean, if you're under 30, you probably know what this means. Otherwise, you're like, is that a heavy metal band? What is that? Or, or right, this is N-O-T-W with the cross and the sword, right? Not of this world. Or, so next time you see that on the back of someone's car, you know, you'll be like, oh, that guy. Okay, that's okay. I, cool. I dig that. Good. Or, or right. Or, or, or. So this brings us to a crucial point we need to understand about the message of Jesus, right? Or, how many of you know... Jesus only ever preached on one topic. Right? This is something that's largely been lost on us, in part, I think, because of the time and place where we live. We often say that Jesus came to preach the good news, right? but the good news of what? Right? How many of you would say yes if I told you that Jesus came primarily to preach a message of salvation? Right? Raise your hands. Right? Is that what Jesus came to preach? Question, where did Jesus say in Scripture that he came to preach a message of salvation? Okay, before you rack your brains, nowhere, right? Jesus never said he came to preach a message of salvation, right? Now, clearly, before you start throwing things at me, there's a Rotten Tomatoes, or, or, salvation is clearly a part or, of, of the message of Jesus. Or, but we've oversimplified that message or to focus on this one point, and we make a deep mistake when we do that. Right, Bob even talked about this last week, right? My personal Jesus, and I get my salvation, and I kind of go, great, now I can do life, and I got my Jesus, and this is good, and it's me and God, and that's the thing, right? Or, and we're good to go. Or, 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 right, but Jesus only ever preached on one thing on his time on earth, and it's exactly what we see in Daniel 7. Right, he came to preach the kingdom of God. And there we are, those three words again. Now, lest you think I'm trying to get overly creative in my first time up here, or let me show you or from Scripture what we're talking about. And I'm going to rapid fire these at you so we don't take all day. I want you to hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, okay, interchangeable ideas, or just based on the author. All right, Jesus comes out of the desert after his temptation leading his, into, into his ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew four twenty three. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease among the people. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears six times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. Matthew 6.10, the second statement in the Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew 6.33, seek first his 
kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew chapter 13, seven parables in this chapter are called, they're typically called the seven mysteries, right? The parable of the soil, the weeds, the mustard seed, the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure and the lost pearl, and the parable of the net. Each one of these parables starts with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, almost every parable Jesus taught starts with that phrase. Matthew 13, 11, when the disciples asked Jesus why he speaks in parables, he told them, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. This is a good one here. Matthew 10, 7, Jesus sends out the 12 and says, go and proclaim the message of salvation. Oh, no, he doesn't. Sorry. He says, go and say the, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? Luke 10, 8 to 9. He does the same thing when he sends out the 72. When you enter a town, excuse me, when you enter a town and are welcome to eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Luke eleven twenty. when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan, Jesus answers, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew eleven twelve. From the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Matthew nineteen fourteen. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Matthew thirteen fifty two. he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and spirit. And Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. There is no other topic which Jesus was more concerned with than the kingdom of God. But in 21st century democracy, we don't much go in for the idea of kingdom, do we? Um, In fact, uh, kingdom and democracy are opposite ideas. Right? That's not to say God hasn't done great things through democracy and it hasn't brought good things to the world and all that, but be be clear, kingdom and democracy are, are opposite or worldviews. In fact, I think we often see kingdom as infringing on our rights and our privileges and our freedoms. But we'll come back to that. So here's Jesus standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and they ask him about being the Messiah, right? With all that in mind that we just said, what, how do you suppose he's going to answer? Right? Same song, seventh verse. He tells them in no uncertain terms, I am the kingdom, or I'm sorry, I am the king, and my kingdom is here, right, in terms they would absolutely understand. What's important to understand here, right, is that when Jesus spoke this verse to the Sanhedrin, he was not referring to a time in the future when he would return, 
right? For those of us who've been around the church for a while, we might be familiar with the phrase, right, coming on the clouds. And we almost always hear it referenced in regards to the second coming. And Bob talked about that, you know, again, last week. This is what we call dual fulfillment, right? There's a present idea and a future idea. Um, in fact, the Apostle John actually references this as well in Revelation 1.7. He says, look, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. As a quick side note, John references another prophecy here found in Zechariah 12.10 when he says, even those who pierced him will see him. A lot of implications there, but John seems there to be referencing an immediate present or not a distant future. I'm just going to roll that hand grenade out there for anybody who wants to argue about eschatology over lunch. You can deal with that. Or, but, or, or, here's the thing. Or in Revelation 19, right, later in Revelation, we see Jesus coming back. And here's the trick. Or, we don't see that imagery at all. Or, we don't see him coming on the clouds. Or, right, he's coming on a white horse with a name tattooed on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth and a scepter of rule and fire in his eyes. This incredible picture of this coming, conquering king. Right, but it, it doesn't line up with that idea of him coming on the clouds. Or you can read that that for yourself later. Or so, although we talk about Daniel, that passage of Daniel in relation to the second coming of Jesus, that's not or what Jesus was immediately saying to them. Or it's not as though he was trying to reference a time in the future when he would win, or like, oh, you got me now, but I'll I'll get you in the end. Right? That's not or or that's not what he was saying. Or what he was saying is, or my victory is now, or my kingdom is established or now, or, and yours is undone. Or, or right, he's reminding them again of what he already told them or when Gabe taught on the parable of the tenants, right? Or do we see this in Matthew? The kingdom has been taken from you and given to others who will bear its fruit. Or, or, so remember that I said the Jews were convinced the Messiah would set up an earthly kingdom, Right as a result, they were focused on the things of this world. Jesus routinely criticized the Sadducees for their love of money and wealth. Right, this trial was actually held in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Right, that doesn't mean they like woke Caiaphas up in the middle of the night and like got together in his living room. Or, or during his tenure, the high priest lived in the palace of the high priest. Right, this was an extravagant opulent estate. In fact, we, got, we have one image here, so or this is actually or a model of kind of Israel during the time of Jesus. So or up here we see the temple, right? This monstrosity here is actually Herod's temple, or Herod's palace, or, and then or this whole thing down here or, is actually the palace of the high priest. Go ahead and jump to the next one, or we'll kind of zoom in on that. Or so this or whole thing here, or was the palace of the high priest, or you can leave that up for a second. Or this palace was said to have 17 bedrooms, or 21 ritual baptismals. Or they think it looked like this. There's actually a couple of different sites that they say may or may not have been. Some people say it was in a different spot, and it actually spanned the the road that went to the, the toward the temple. All that, regardless, or, or it, it was inc- an incredibly opulent estate, or, right? Um, or it, it, it was meant to proclaim the power, wealth, and status right, of the chief priests. Uh, go to the next one. We see this in Mark, 50, uh, in Mark in verse 54, right? Peter followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. So this is kind of a cutaway model of one of the areas of one of the wings. This 
this palace was said to have two big wings. This was one area of one of the wings, and this would have been kind of like the open-air type courtyard, right, that Peter would have wandered into. It's not like he was like in the front yard and they were kind of in the living room. Like this was a massive area. Or you can take that down. So Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin in a place that represents the very essence of their earthly kingdom. All right, this is the court of the Jewish rulers, the seat of those who supposedly judge rightly for God. So the irony of this setting is profound, and it's in this setting that Jesus claims the nature of his kingdom. So that's the reference from Daniel that Jesus makes. Let's look at the second Old Testament scripture really fast. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, the Jewish leaders would have known this verse as talking about the Messiah and that God would make Messiah's enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus just clearly looked at 70 Jewish leaders in front of them and called him his enemies in no uncertain terms. Jesus meant what he said here. It wasn't the first time he said it. Remember, he has previously called the Jewish leaders children of hell and children of the devil. Right, and we see this in Matthew and John. Very strong language. Right? And this is the key difference between what he said to the disciples and what he says to the Sanhedrin here. Right? He said to the disciples, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Right? My kingdom is here, let's do this. Over here, he says that same thing, but he sticks this phrase in the middle that says, you're going to see my kingdom, but you're standing against it. Right, and I just want to say, just be really clear on a side note here. Or Jesus is not talking to all of Israel when he ta- when he says this. Or, right, or this is not a condemnation of the Jewish of the Jews or of the, of the nation of Israel. He's talking to the Jewish leaders who have failed, or, right, in their leadership of Israel. Here's the thing: the Jewish leaders actually condemn themselves, or here and prove Jesus correct. Here's a quote actually from a commentary by Alexander McLaren. The eagerness of the Jews to find witnesses against Jesus is witness for him, as showing that nothing in his life or teaching was sufficient to warrant their murderous purpose. His judges condemn themselves in seeking grounds to condemn him, for they thereby show their real motive was personal spite, or as Caiaphas suggested, political expediency. So I mentioned before the irony here. Let's just take a quick look at this. They are standing there with Jesus in front of them, rejecting the very promise they've so long awaited. Right? It'd be like coming down Christmas morning and being like, okay, it's clearly not actually Christmas because the tree's in the wrong spot and the wrapping paper's not right, and I asked for cinnamon rolls and there's donuts. Right? And then you go, well, open a gift, and you open up this gift, and you find $1,000 in cash. You go, well, this has got to be counterfeit. Right, or, or it doesn't matter what Jesus presented to them; or they refused to see it correctly. Right, and why did they miss it? Because they were focused on their earthly kingdom. Or Jesus didn't fit that goal. See, it wasn't what they. It wasn't that they didn't understand or Jesus. Right. Spoiler alert from Mark fifteen: or Who are the two people that took down that, that, that took down and buried Jesus' body? 
right? Or Nicodemus, or who we see again, or, and Joseph of Arimathea, right? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea, or we, he's called an influential member of the council, so he was either a Pharisee or a Sadducee, or, right? Or they saw, they understood what Jesus was saying. It just had no effect on their life. So what does this all mean for us today? There are two ways I think that what we see here should impact our lives. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, right? A spiritual kingdom with spiritual priorities. We are not citizens of an earthly kingdom. I'm not talking about politics here, although this has implications for that as well. But my question to each of us this morning is this. Are you protecting what you see as your earthly kingdom? Or are you using the things that God has given you to further the real and lasting kingdom? So we gather all this stuff around us in our lives, or, but how do we see those things? We asked earlier, right, are those things where we find our treasure? To be clear, the things of this world aren't evil, right? God is the giver of all good gifts, where everything we have comes from him, and we can enjoy all the things God has given us, but we need to remember, right, those things are fading and failing, and in the eyes of God, they have no value, except what they can do to further the kingdom of God. Or, or if we're honest, I think we live in a culture where we are taught or, to protect our kingdom of stuff or, rather than freely give it away. Right? But ultimately, folks, what are we protecting? Imagine if your friends and coworkers saw you hold loosely and with open hands or everything you own. What if you were ready to give it away at a moment's notice? Or at least share it. What if we really trusted God to take care of us so much that we lived without fear of how our needs would be met? Right? I heard a quote recently that said, the kingdom of God cannot flourish in a culture driven by fear. I believe truly this is one of the key ways that those of us who follow Jesus are meant to look different or from the world around us. If you follow Jesus, you must contend right, with the fact that Jesus only ever preached the kingdom. He started with it at his baptism. He ends with it here in front of the Sanhedrin, right? But this was the beginning of the kingdom. And how we live our lives today determines the fulfillment of that very kingdom. We can't sit around and wait for certain prophecies to be fulfilled until we live with the kingdom mindset. Quite the opposite, I think that likely we won't see those things fulfilled until God's people start returning to him in large numbers to truly advancing the kingdom of God in their lives. So I don't think we're waiting for Jesus to return for us as much as I think Jesus is waiting for us to return to him in this way. We face the same choice as the Jewish leaders did standing in front of Jesus there. The irony of looking God in the face or hearing his obvious truth and standing against it by holding on to our kingdom of stuff instead of his. See, Jesus called the Sanhedrin his enemies. They were set directly against the kingdom of God. And I'm certainly not asking us to consider ourselves enemies of God, not in any stretch. But I wonder if we wouldn't do well to ask God to show us the places in our lives where we're not aligned with his kingdom and his will. 
And I want to be clear, or just, or this struck me when Tom said this, or this is not a message of condemnation. This is not a message of, or hey, or you're not doing this right. Or, right? This is, or, this is a God who comes and, and picks us up or, and says, let's do something better. Or, right? This is a call or up or to better and more beautiful things or not or a call of or condemnation for how we're not doing things right. Or, so I just, or, I had to say that. Or, or, see, the work of the kingdom is here and now and it doesn't get done without us. Or, as a side note, listen, I'm not talking about or taking back the institutions of the world. Or, or right, there's a lot going on in the culture right now that says, or we got to take back our, or that is not the goal and never was the goal of Jesus and his kingdom. Or, the work of the kingdom is the same as what God called Israel to way back in Deuteronomy, right? To take care or, of the alien or the orphan or the widow, the oppressed the outcast, the forgotten, the poor among us. This is the work of the kingdom. Folks, we need to protect more and protest less in every area of our lives. See, the eternal life that God gives us is not eternal because it's a timeline or that starts when we get to heaven, right? We're not waiting for eternal life. We don't, it doesn't start when we get there. We're, his life is eternal because of the nature of the life of God. It is so vast in its nature. It knows no end. There is nowhere it does not reach. There's nothing that can stop it and nothing can limit the immense power and love of the life of God. <laughs> he, amen, amen. He, when he gives us eternal life, he gives us eternal life when we, when we step into and partake in the life of God. You stepped into that life when you first believed in Jesus, and that life is the very substance of the kingdom we're called to bring. It's the life that is the light of men, as the Apostle John said, and it's a life that is only fully experienced by those who find their treasure in the kingdom of God. Listen, if you don't know this life and you've never been invited to know Jesus, I want to tell you this kingdom is for you. Right? There are no prerequisites or standards to be met before you come to Jesus and his kingdom. Everything we're talking about today is available to anyone and everyone and there is no formula to get in. And if your soul is stirring in you this morning, please do not ignore that. That is the Spirit of God himself calling out to you, right? There are greater things than all the stuff that surrounds us in this world. And the journey of moving your heart to a new treasure starts with just calling out to Jesus and telling him you want to know him. So at the end of all of this, we're left with a choice. Will we revel in the wealth and power of the world of the Sadducees? Will we choose the self-righteous piety of the Pharisees that blocks people from the kingdom? Or will we really, truly choose to find our treasure in the Jesus that stands before the rulers of the world with nothing to prove, but with the entire kingdom of God in his hands? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that you are the one that comes and picks us up, or you are the one that gives us life, your life, or that is the light of men. You have given that to us, that your kingdom might be fulfilled, 
in the lives of those people around us. Let us shine that light. Let us live that life and let us find our treasure in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we're going to move. Thank you. We're going to move into communion now. Or here at Discover, or you do not have to be a member of Discover Community Church to partake in communion. If you claim Jesus as your as your God and your Lord and your Savior, you're welcome or to come up and partake in communion. Kelly and I will be up here. Bob will, Gabe will be on the other side. Or, um, or there will be wine, bread, and gluten-free crackers up here. Or there's juice or, um, or and bread and self-serve cups over on the side um, at that station. We're just kind of come form two lines down here. We'll kind of go around like that. Or thank you, folks. I appreciate it. Um, I'll be up front here if you want to lambast me later. So, or, um, or thank you. Or,